Hi, and welcome to another Market Voice podcast. I'm Jeff Reeves. In today's fast-moving markets, the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000 may seem like ancient history, but with a bit of perspective, it's easy to see that foundational changes to regulation two decades ago have played a big role in the growth and success of clear derivatives markets over the intervening years. The Days of Futures Past podcast, produced by our friends at Smarter Markets, recently interviewed FIA President and CEO Walt Lucan to discuss where we've been as an industry and where we're headed in the years to come. They've graciously shared the audio with us to distribute here on our platform. Here's FIA's Walt Lucan. The Commodity Futures Modernization Act was trying to, in some ways, square the circle from that original act and deal with some of the things, you know, both giving the CFTC some flexibility in how it regulates the futures markets, making it less prescriptive, dealing with some of the jurisdictional issues with the SEC, but also recognizing the over-the-counter derivatives markets and the growth that was happening there and allowing that market to continue to blossom, to grow complementary to what was happening to exchange-traded derivatives. So all that was addressed as part of the CFMA in 2000, and that just started that with technology coming into our markets, just started a revolution in exchange-traded derivatives. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities, and finance ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Abax Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology and better tools for risk management. Welcome back to Days of Futures Past on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Walt Lucan, President and CEO of the FIA and former Acting Chairman of the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission. We'll be discussing the history and the legacy of the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000. Hello, Walt. Welcome back to Smarter Markets. Hey, Dave. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And I'm better for having you here with us again. When you were on the podcast last year, we were talking about your work at the FIA, but today I'd like to go back in time with you more and talk about your experiences as the acting chairman of the CFTC in the 2000s. That period, of course, was one of tremendous growth and change in the exchange-traded derivatives markets and their regulation. As someone who is at the center of those changes as a policymaker, can you take us back to that period and what led to this growth? In the 2000s, um, as you mentioned, if you look at a graph of what happened to exchange-traded derivatives from 2000 on, the steep slope of, of growth is pretty amazing. And there's a variety of reasons why that occurred. But I think one of them is unlocking the regulatory framework of our markets in a smart way. And so I was involved both as acting chairman of the CFTC, um, as you mentioned, as a commissioner, uh, but also even before that, I worked in the Senate, the Senate Agriculture Committee as a Senate staffer in helping to craft the Commodity Futures Modernization Act, which was passed in 2000 and really helped to unlock our industry's potential and, and to allow that growth to happen. 
you know, really to talk about that bill, you really have to date yourself back to the start of the modern futures industry in 1974. We're about to celebrate 50 years of the Commodity Exchange Act, but it did something revolutionary, which is took you know a market that was only meant for agricultural products and expanded the definition of commodity to include financial interests, to include equities, to include a variety of different products beyond agriculture and traditional commodities. At the same time, it gave the agency exclusive jurisdiction over those markets, which put it on a a collision course with the SEC, with FERC, with others that may have jurisdiction over those cash products, but not over the derivatives products. So the Commodity Futures Modernization Act was trying to, in some ways, square the circle from that original act and deal with some of the things, you know, both giving the CFTC some flexibility in how it regulates the futures markets, making it less prescriptive, dealing with some of the jurisdictional issues with the SEC, but also recognizing the over-the-counter derivatives markets and the growth that was happening there and allowing that market to continue to blossom to grow complementary to what was happening to exchange-traded derivatives. So all that was addressed as part of the CFMA in 2000, and that just started that with technology coming into our markets, just started a revolution in exchange-traded derivatives. Absolutely. Quite the hockey stick in the growth over that period. And you've mentioned the Commodity Futures Modernization Act as being instrumental in this. Can you take us through in a little more detail some of the major features, the major pillars that made that legislation so important? Well, really sort of three major pillars there. One, again, I mentioned was this: how the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, could regulate products. Before um, that, it, they would have to approve every product that was listed on an exchange. And that could take months, even years for an, uh, a new product to get up and running on a futures exchange. So that was problematic. And I think coming into 2000, we wanted to address that. You know, really we had European exchanges that were able to quickly get products up and running in the marketplace. And so we had this concept of principles-based regulation. And principles-based regulation means that we would put down uh, for an exchange or a clearinghouse you know, 14 or 15 principles of how we expected them to act and regulate their markets. And within those those principles were the CFTC could also provide guidance as a way that you would be in, in compliance with those principles. Uh, but it would give the exchanges more flexibility. And so if they had something innovative they wanted to try, maybe outside the norm, principles-based regulation would allow them to stretch the envelope and innovate. And so we thought that this was a very unique thing that we were going to try with the CFTC. The the UK had already tried this with the Big Bang in 1986, uh, but those were really broad missionary purposes of the acts. This was getting more in the specifics of how the act would run. And so that was endorsed by the chair of the CFTC at the time and ultimately implemented as part of the Commodity Futures Modernization Act. That along with self-certification. So instead of the CFTC having to approve products or approve rules of exchanges, they could self-certify. They could come to the CFTC and say, 
hey, this is meeting all the principles of the act. We've done our homework. We think it should get up and running and we're going to do this quickly so we can compete. And that self-certification process came into effect as part of the Commodity Futures Modernization Act as well. You know, the second big bucket was just this jurisdictional divide with the SEC. The SEC and the CFTC had fought over you know, who should regulate securities or indices on securities. The SEC cared that futures on equities might replace what they were regulating as, as cash equities. And so for years, there was a ban on single stock futures. And so the Commodity Futures Modernization Act took off that band, jointly regulated those products between the SEC and CFTC, and allowed certain indices to be exclusively in the jurisdiction of, of the CFTC. And when they were more narrow, they would be jointly regulated by the two agencies. So that was a big, big uh, part of the CFMA. And then lastly is the over-the-counter markets. The over-the-counter markets were growing, they were getting bigger, but they were not exchange-traded. They were happening in bilateral agreements. You know, if you're deemed a futures contract in the United States, you have to be traded on an exchange. And so there was some rattling of the CFTC at the time that they were looking to potentially deem over-the-counter derivatives futures, and as a result, those products would be void. They'd be illegal. And that was caused some systemic risk in the, in the marketplace as a result of that. And so the president's working group, uh, the financial regulators came together and decided to exclude those products outside the CFTC's uh, jurisdiction to avoid that legal uncertainty that was being created by this, this endeavor. Ultimately, that got a lot of attention during the financial crisis because it was seen as a deregulatory effort. But at the time, it was meant to address this legal uncertainty and the potential systemic effect that this, this deeming uh, over-the-counter swaps as futures would have caused in the marketplace. And I'd love to delve into each of those a little more deeply with you because one of the interesting things right, about the United States is that unlike many other countries, we have these different regulatory divisions. We have a securities market regulator in the SEC, as well as a derivatives market regulator in the CFTC, because commodities began as agricultural products. There's jurisdiction from the agricultural side as well. And since the inception of the CFTC you know, in 1974, there's been these jurisdictional disputes. In the early 80s, there was a political compromise, the Shad Johnson Accord, uh, which you referred to. But in what ways was that becoming untenable? And in what ways do you think the CFMA needed to come in and clarify those in order to allow for that growth that we saw in the 2000s? Well, I, I think it's amazing. And I obviously, I'm a his, historian of our markets. And, and in, But in 1974, when they carved the CFTC out of, out of broadcloth to create the agency, you know, they had, and I think they even went to the SEC and said, do you want to regulate these products? And, you know, some of those officials said, well, no, this isn't, you know, we don't want to deal with farm animals and crops and you know, anything that walks around. That's not our, our world. And so in order to give them clear lines of jurisdiction, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, when you think about it, they said, okay, we're going to give you exclusive jurisdiction, meaning if they claim jurisdiction, no other regulator, the SEC, the states, no other could could touch it. It was under the exclusive jurisdiction of uh, the CFTC. 
And at the same time, they broadly define commodity to include almost everything you can think of. I mean, if you read the definition, like it, it ends with saying, and all rights and legal interests that you can think of, you know, and so it pulled the world into the CFTC's jurisdiction if it, they listed a uh, futures contract and it was exclusive. So that meant that FERC products that were under the jurisdiction of FERC potentially could have been pulled into to the CFTC's jurisdiction or SEC, I, I mentioned as well, USDA even. And so over the years, since that time, there have been court cases, there have been ways to try to figure out how do you draw brighter lines around the CFTC's jurisdiction. And it's gotten better. It's gotten better. But the CFMA really tried to figure this out. And for years, like I said, you know, security futures. So if you wanted to, if you could, if you want to go to London and buy a future on a European company, you could do that back in, in 2000. You couldn't do it in the United States. And so there was a growing competitive concern that Europe was doing this. They could even list U.S. stocks, but you couldn't do it here on uh, U.S. soil. And so they decided to figure out a way. They, they sort of locked the CFTC and the SEC in the room together and said, figure it out. And they figured out a joint regulatory structure that would allow that to occur. And also at the same time, uh, indices, broad-based indices, these are legal terms, go exclusively to the CFTC and, and narrow-based would be something where there'd be a joint regulatory construct. That still to this day becomes an issue because as markets come to become you know, narrow, um, there are big consequences to from a, you know, one of these big contracts that are being traded under the CFTC's jurisdiction to become narrow, then they may be out of compliance, these contracts, if they become narrow from broad. And so even today, some of these rules are being challenged and thought through. So even though this was done in 2000 to help clarify some things, we still live with the consequences of that, and it still remains uh, an issue at the agency. And a fascinating point about looking at the history of these markets is the number of markets that are so developed, so big, such a part of our life today, that were deemed illegal at yep. many points, You know, going back options contracts, cash-settled futures contracts. It's pretty amazing. And obviously, the regulatory structure to make that transition needed to be put in place. And as you've said a number of times, it's also, it's not occurring in a vacuum, right? You have regulators in the UK, regulators in other jurisdictions, and financial markets can go to a certain extent to where they need to if the regulations are too onerous. And I wanted to ask you, you know, in light of the CFTC you mentioned it moved to principles-based regulation. And I imagine on the one hand, that has a lot of benefits that you mentioned. There's flexibility. There's the ability for markets to adjust more quickly. It sounds like the self-certification kind of came in under a similar envelope. But most of the other agencies in the US were still under that kind of top-down, prescriptive type of regulatory approach that, that's more traditional. Were there difficulties in implementing this principles-based regulation that the CFMA provided to the CFTC? There were, and it was almost a cultural shift too. I mean, I think most of the regulatory apparatus in the United States, as you mentioned, they're lawyers, they're dealing with very specific rules. And so to allow all of a sudden a more flexible framework in, and what it was intended to do is to say, Here's the principle. Here's a safe harbor of the guidance underneath the principle that we find okay. But an exchange or a registered entity could say, 
I may even go outside of that safe harbor. I may do something different. I think it's still meeting the principle. I still think it, here's why, here's the proof of why I think it's it's going to do what you want me to do. But technically, it's it's going to allow me to do something a little innovative. And so that concept of allowing the marketplace to innovate in the regulatory sphere was a bit new. But over the years, I mean, now we're 23 years into principles-based regulation. I think that we've gotten to a place where it's a blend. It's a blend of both people want certainty of what the rule means and how to be in compliance with it and the lawyers get comfortable with it. But it gives us at least a, a conceptual framework and to say, you know, we're always thinking about ways to do it better. We're always, you know, whether it's the marketplace itself can go to the market regulator and say, I think I'm in compliance or the regulator itself can say, let's stretch this. We, the marketplace has moved and we have to update our guidance to meet the principle. So I think you're, you're right. There were some growing pains at the beginning. But I think even now, I mean, you, you know, Chairman Gensler post financial crisis was at the agency and he's not a guy that's shy about, you know, going after wrongdoing in, in the marketplace. Uh, but even he was a proponent of principles-based regulation and he understood the benefits of it. So I think hopefully that uh, after 23 years, it's a bit more accepted by the industry and what its benefits are and uh, how we can help keep the marketplace in compliance. And in those early days, though, there, there were a number of challenges to it in that, you know, with the financial crisis in 2008, a lot of the blame for that kind of came at the feet of complex over-the-counter derivatives based on the housing market, mortgage-backed securities and the like. And the CFMA was often cited as having deregulated that market and created the conditions that led to the excesses that helped contribute to the financial crisis. How do you see the CFMA and its role in some of the issues that led up to the financial crisis? What, what's your view of the real story there? Well, I think you know it was trying to deal with a, an immediate issue, which is there were given concerns that the CFTC was moving to regulate over-the-counter derivatives as futures, it could have caused systemic issues. And I think there was broad agreement around that. The president's working group, when it came out with its recommendations to exclude over-the-counter derivatives from this CFTC's jurisdiction, it also said that it was up to the president's working group to think through a proper regulatory structure for those products. Those products is, you know, were being looked at by prudential regulators over the years and over that time. There wasn't a potential, there wasn't a specific market regulator overseeing the swaps market, but certainly there were regulators overseeing banks, prudential regulators overseeing banks that had transparency into those those markets. And so, you know, that second step that I mentioned of, you know, did the president's working group come back together and say, okay. It's big enough now, it's causing a systemic problem. Should we be thinking about a proper regulatory approach? And unfortunately, they never got around to that. And, and the prudential regulation didn't get a chance to see the totality of the marketplace. I was acting chairman in 2007. So I was in the meetings with Hank Paulson, with Ben Bernanke, with Chris Cox, as we were talking about these CDS products, uh, the credit default swaps, and all these different structured products that had these toxic derivatives in them and the housing crisis and all that was going on in the background. And at that point, we were at triage point. There wasn't anything we could do, but just try to understand the scope of it. And ultimately, the financial crisis 
came and we we had sort of seen this coming over you know a six month period of time the potential for this you know i was up in lehman brothers over that weekend making sure our markets were being properly regulated and transferred away from lehman but it was it culminated in the the financial crisis that has been replayed many times on in books and and uh, on the news media and I think in hindsight, you know, I wish they they had gone back to to all of that and figured out a regulatory structure. I think coming out of the financial crisis, this idea of bringing things into more lit markets into clearing, probably if it had they had done that earlier um, in the 2000s, maybe avoid, have avoided some of the issues we dealt with during the financial crisis. It seems like that's always the challenge, right? Is getting the focus and the attention before the crisis. After the crisis, we, we all seem to, to focus on these things. One other area where I think a similar to a lesser extent issue played out in the energy markets was Enron's implosion kind of occurring in the shadow of the passage of the CFMA. How did the CFMA deal with energy derivatives and how did the collapse of Enron change the regulatory approach toward the energy markets? Well, it, it was a bit of a controversial issue. I think the president's working group, when it said, you know, hey, get these over-the-counter derivatives out of the CFTC's jurisdiction, they were really talking about financial derivatives and not energy, you know, physical commodities. That was, I think, arguably more in the CFTC's jurisdiction that they still had a stake in that. There were certainly exchange-traded derivatives, energy derivatives markets that had an impact on what was happening over-the-counter. Uh, but it was included. Congress decided to include it as part of uh, those over-the-counter derivatives that were excluded. And so those markets, as a compromise, I think what the, the Commodity Futures Modernization Act said was that the CFTC had certain abilities to look at those markets, to see the trading systems, to track those markets. And so they were sort of halfway regulated, I would say, coming out of the CFMA. But truthfully, not enough that would it would capture the whole regulatory system that Enron ended up exploiting. So Enron, you know, in in 2002, I think was uh, when the Enron situation all went down. You know, they were running a a dealer market that really looked like an exchange, but didn't trigger the Commodity Futures Trading Commission's jurisdiction. And yeah, I think after its implosion. There was a recognition in Congress, and I was, at the time, I was chairman of the agency, and we decided to regulate you know, those price discovery markets that, yes, we need over-the-counter energy products, but if you start to be such a you know, liquid market and you start to discover prices, if people are quoting your over-the-counter products publicly because they're, they're price discovery products, then they need to be regulated as exchanges. And we created this ability to trigger those, those more liquid products into the CFTC's jurisdiction. And I worked at the time closely with Dan Berkovitz, who ultimately became a CFTC commissioner. He was on the Hill at the time working for Senator Levin. And we came up with this concept and Congress, in a bipartisan way, came together and and fix the issue. But I think there was a recognition on energy that really we need to, for the same reason, you know, Dodd-Frank pulled a lot of these swaps into more regulated markets. Certainly energy, we needed to get more in lit markets, get more into cleared markets. And we, we fixed some of that pre-Dodd-Frank um, when I was chairman of the agency. In addition to this, this trend driven by some of these events of 
migrating more OTC things onto exchange where it's regulated. There was another big trend in the 2000s, which was the exchanges beginning to demutualize. Yep. For our listeners, can you explain how exchanges traditionally operated? And then how did this trend towards demutualization converge with what was happening in the regulatory environment? Yeah. No, I mean, for hundreds of years, exchanges were, they were clubs, they were membership clubs. That was the New York Stock Exchange. That was the CME. That was all these exchanges. And partly is because they wanted to control the environment in which trading happened. And so they would allow members to, to join for a certain price to, to be a part of the club. And then once you were in the club, they would regulate you as a member and you would have to abide by their rules and make sure that things were fair as part of the club. But also that mutualization meant that you also shared in the profits of the club, right? So you you were there and 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 you wanted to make sure that the people you were dealing with were you know upstanding individuals in the community. They had a certain amount of credit you know associated with them that they could pay their bills if you were trading with them. And and so that's how things were for for many many years until about 2002. I think CME may have been the first exchange to go and demutualize and ultimately list an IPO uh, with the New York Stock Exchange. But that then unlocked in this you know, equity that the exchanges were looking. And so they, as a result, you know, the owners now became investors in this, these exchanges. They still had, you know, members, people who were now members of the exchange has had to abide by their rules, had to abide by their regulations, but the profits were no longer associated with membership. It was now owned by the shareholders of those organizations um, so they changed a bit of the dynamics, you know, before both the profits and the risk were, you know, aligned. But after 2002 and after all these exchanges went public, um, you broke apart sort of the equity and the risk. And now the risk was being borne by the people who are still members, but didn't benefit from the profits. And the profits were being, you know, benefited by people who may not have any affiliation with the exchange, but didn't have anything to do with the risk. And so what had to happen is is to make sure that the risk was properly being taken care of, not at the expense of, of profits, but you, you, know, you get attention there. And so I think over the years, that's been something that's been playing out. These, these exchanges are, are big Fortune 500 companies with shareholders, and the shareholders are the ones that, as any chief executive officer would do, they pay attention to shareholders. They want to deliver shareholder value. And risk has to be somehow hedged back into their oversight. And so it's just made it an interesting dynamic uh, moving away from these mutualized exchanges and, and making sure that the risk aspect of what they do is aligned with the equity aspect of the exchanges and, but you know, unlocking that capital for all of those organizations has contributed to that 2000s growth that we saw and helped to unleash some of that investment into those organizations. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating problem because, as you said, on the one hand, it unlocked all this investment capital and allowed the, the investment to grow these exchanges and grow these markets. On the other hand, you know, as you've said, when the exchange is owned by the members, there's a lot of value there. You don't want to risk blowing up the exchange. So there's a lot of self-policing that occurs because you have a, a lot of skin in the game. 
you know, we've heard echoes of this in other places as well, where, you know, the, the movement from the trading pits to electronic trading, where it democratized the exchanges and globalized them and had many wonderful aspects. There was another aspect where, you know, misbehavior in the pit was dealt with in the pit, you know, in a right. certain way that, so I'm, I'm kind of curious as a regulator, when there's been the movement to kind of allow things like self-certification and, and kind of put the onus on the industry, at the same time, some forces are making it less natural to have that self-policing aspect. How do you, how do you see the regulatory interaction coming in with that? No, it's a great question. And I think for us, you know, it's making sure incentives are aligned. And so I think that's how the regulators have to approach it. They just have to understand that there are these natural tensions now that exist. And so, like you said, it sort of self-policed itself before. And so you knew that if, if something bad was happening on the floor, that the floor would take care of it because there was accountability. There was accountability there, you know, before. So now we have to sort of reconstruct it. We have to reconstruct that accountability, reconstruct, you know, how we block these conflicts of interest. I think, you know, that is something the regulators are are looking at. I mean, I think they're trying to figure out how can and even even this this concept of, you know, exchanges now owning FCMs, okay? Well, exchanges also regulate FCMs as members of their organization. So can you be a competitor and also regulate your competitors? And again, the horse is out of the barn at this point, right? With demutualization, that doesn't mean though we can't you know, identify where the conflicts lie, create structure in order to deal with those conflicts, to manage them, to bring transparency to them. And I think, you know, regulators today, as technology brings all these functions together, just have to be thoughtful about, you know, how do we deconstruct the, what's actually happening under the hood and to make sure there's proper firewalls and existence and conflicts of interest management. So that's going to be the challenge, I think, for the next, you know, five to 10 years for regulators. And I'd like to, you know, shift gears a little bit and look at things a little bit more globally, because of course, the 2000s, people who aren't involved in exchanges will look back and say, well, that was a big period of globalization in the economy broadly. And I was curious, you know, how did those big global influences and what was happening globally in the futures markets during this time contribute to the growth and change in the exchange traded derivatives markets and how regulators were approaching them? Well, even before the CFMA in 2000, there were exchanges as technology was coming into into play. There were exchanges like DTB, the like the predecessor to Eurex, who wanted to come and list terminals in the United States and capture, you know, liquidity from the United States. And there was no way that the CFTC, under its jurisdiction, had the ability to. There wasn't a construct in which to to deal with that. And so I think what we saw in 2000s was really the unlocking of global trading and how do, how do you deal with that? You know, today we talk a lot about, you know, equivalence and recognition and those are concepts that people are are familiar with. But back then it really was unless it's on my soil and in this building, you know, I don't know how to regulate these things. But technology unlocked all of that. And so coming into the 2000s and the CFMA with its principles-based regulation helped with that. And ultimately, Congress passed the Foreign Board of Trade concept, which is 
allowing foreign exchanges to register with the CFTC and give access to U.S. citizens to those foreign exchanges. But what the CFTC did in the meantime was deal use its exemptive authority to recognize these foreign uh, exchanges through just its rulemaking, powerful rulemaking abilities, and to to recognize them, to put conditions on them. If you're going to talk to U.S. customers, they have to abide by customer protection rules and hold their funds here and do the following. But the CFTC in the 2000s was able to come up with a construct that would work to allow foreign exchanges to access U.S. citizens. And the same was happening for foreign participants wanting to access uh, U.S. exchanges. I remember I was a commissioner at the time, but I asked Jim Newsom, who was chairman of the CFTC, asked me to go to a meeting of the president's working group. And Alan Greenspan was chairman of the Fed. And before the CFTC was an application by Eurex to get access to U.S. customers. And we were going through the process, this that I mentioned, of approving them and making sure all these protections were in place. And, and Greenspan, as a very pro-competition, pro-free trade guy, sort of cornered me and he said, you know, hey, when are you going to approve that your uh, application? We need to get those, you know, that competitive, you know, because there's not many futures exchanges and he wanted to see competition in our markets. And so, uh, you know, fast forward, we did approve it and we did, they did launch their, their products. But if you talk to any exchange today from CME to Eurex to, to Life in London, whatever it might be, a significant, a third to two thirds of their volume comes from over their borders, from somewhere else. That didn't exist before 2000, but today it's such a global marketplace. We are pulling from liquidity all around the globe. And this concept that was really developed and exercised in 2000 is what has gotten us here today. Once again, it's amazing that it wasn't that way about 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> But you know, when you brought up, I guess the the CFTC is approaching its fiftieth birthday, and it's been you know about twenty three years since the adoption of the Commodity Futures Modernization Act. So, you know, that was almost half of the CFTC's lifetime ago. And it makes me wonder: Do you think we're due for another modernization of how we regulate the derivatives markets? And if so, what principles and lessons from your experience in the two thousands? Should we carry forward to make sure that these markets continue to grow and thrive into the future? Well, I do think the Commodity Exchange Act, because of the flexibility that has been built in over the years, is well-suited to deal with new products, new innovations uh, that are occurring. You know, the one area that's obvious is the, the digital asset space. You know, right now there is a gap in regulation in the United States. The securities, if it's deemed a security and some digital assets are security, that naturally will flow to the to the SEC. But if it's just a cash commodity, it's just, you know, it's not a security, but it's also not a futures. So it's not a futures on a commodity, then it's in a gap. It's it's not regulated by anybody in the United States. So I do think there are efforts and there were hearings last week to to look at how do we close the gap? You know, how do we define what digital assets are securities and which digital cash assets to go to the CFTC including the futures derivatives aspects of those cash assets. So both the House Financial Services Committee and the House Ag Committee had a joint hearing 
And my guess is that they're going to try to close that gap around digital assets. And to me, that's pretty interesting. And that could be something that you know revolutionizes the CFTC space is to give it not just futures jurisdiction, but actually cash market jurisdiction over digital assets. I would say the other big issue right now are vet contracts. So you're hearing more marketplaces that are just betting on what we would call binary options, but just you know, is this economic event going to happen or not? Is GDP going to hit this or not? Even if it gets into even the elections, will, you know, will the House flip Republican or Democrat, you know, and people are starting to list these products with an economic aspect behind it. So the CFTC, you know, in the commodity definition says you have jurisdiction over these things, but not gaming. Gaming is is not part of your jurisdiction. And so these things get pretty close to gaming. And so one of the things Congress may have to do is put in a line to say, yes, we want the CFTC to regulate these types of markets that have maybe an economic activity behind them. But this, whether it's political contests or whatever they may say, we don't want you to be touching that. We don't want markets on assassinations and markets on political events and there's too much, too much wrongdoing that could happen on those types of things. So to me, that's going to be an interesting space to watch and how that might be incorporated into the Commodity Exchange Act. And maybe just my last question to you is, any advice for future policymakers as they deal with how these markets grow and evolve over time to you know, make sure that the principles and lessons that you learned help us continue to build strong markets into the future? Well, I think, you know, they have uh, over the years built a lot of flexibility into the act, which gives the regulatory authority the ability to evolve with the markets as they evolve. So if we want to maintain our leadership in financial services in the United States over the years, we want to make sure that the markets are safe, they're properly protected, but we're not stifling innovation through regulation. And so my words of caution to policymakers would be, you know, make sure that those aspects of the, the flexible regulatory approach are protected. So, you know, during Dodd-Frank, for example, there's uh, exemptive authority given to the CFTC, Section 4C of the Act. It was severely restricted, you know, during Dodd-Frank to not allow the agency to, to amend its rules in ways uh, as the market evolved. I'd love to see, personally, this is Walt Lucan speaking, I'd love to see it, you know, it given back to its original glory um, you know, of the act, because the agency has to evolve and, and Congress shouldn't necessarily be um, you know, too overzealous and limiting what it can do. They have oversight ability. They have the ability to appropriate to the agencies, to limit its ability. They have plenty of tools to tell the CFTC it's out of line. But to get into that kind of prescriptive regulation without allowing it to be flexible and, and make sure that it can implement smart regulations for our markets and allow us to be the leading markets globally, I think is, is dangerous. So I'm hopeful that Congress continues to allow the CFTC to do the job it's doing, allow it to have some flexibility and uh, continue to lead from a regulatory standpoint.
This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal, or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual, or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties, or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast content. Reliance on the podcast contents is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale, or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2022 FIA. All rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.